Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about empowering each of us with the perspective and tools to grow and change. Thanks for joining us today. I hope as you listen to these podcasts, you walk away with some real practical ways you can open your eyes to your potential and how to live a happier life. I've had podcasts that have done that for me, and that's why I love podcasts. So wherever you're at right now, in your car, on the treadmill, or at your desk, seeking a little bit of inspiration, and whatever you're doing, I hope this podcast today helps you open your eyes to some new ways of thinking and doing. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk to you about the principle of what's next. Now, if you've run the Boston Marathon, you know it's like no other road race in the world. My second Boston Marathon run was in 2012. I woke up at 4.45 a.m. in my hotel room on Patriots Day, the morning of the race, carefully packed my race bag, got dressed, and made my way in the early morning to the buses that would take us from downtown Boston to the start in Hoppington, Mass. The course takes you through Hoppington, Ashland, Framingham, Natick, and Wellesley. At Wellesley College, the students are lined up on the side of the road, cheering you on. It's so wonderful. The course has more hills than you think, and it changes in elevation more than you might expect. And near Boston College, you hit Heartbreak Hill, which isn't a huge hill, but it arrives at mile 21 when your legs are the most tired. Then you get a little reprieve as you drop down into Boston proper and run the last several miles to the finish line, which is near Copley Square. Now that year, as I approached the last one half mile, spectators were packed on the sides of the street and cheering us on to the end. It is such a rush to run that last one half a mile. And it was on that last one half a mile stretch in the 2013 Boston Marathon where Karen McWater's life changed forever. Karen lived in Boston and was an executive assistant to the famous chef, Jasper White. Her husband, Kevin, had run the 2012 Boston Marathon, and he thought he was done with marathons. But in 2013, he decided to give it one more try. And on the day of the marathon, Karen and her 29-year-old friend, Crystal Campbell, made their way to Boylston Street, near the finish line, to cheer on Kevin as he ran his last Boston Marathon. At 2.49 p.m., with more than 5,600 runners still trying to get to the finish line, two bombs detonated about 200 yards apart. The first exploded outside Marathon Sports on Boylston Street. The second exploded 14 seconds later, one block away. Now, the bombs themselves were made from pressure cookers. Inside the pressure cookers were deadly shrapnel, including nails, ball bearings, and black powder. And the step-by-step instructions for making pressure cooker bombs was published in an article entitled, Make a Bomb in the Kitchen of Your Mom, in the Al-Qaeda-connected magazine, Inspire. And two young men living in Boston read the article and made the bombs, took them to the finish line in backpacks, and detonated them. Now, the reason pressure cookers are used is that similar to pipe bombs, the pressure cooker provides containment for the energy from the explosion until the cooker itself explodes. And this creates a much larger blast and blast radius. The first bomb, detonated by a cell phone, was placed behind many of the spectators, including Karen and Crystal, and the blast trajectory sent the shrapnel low at knee level through the crowds of people. 
The second bomb was detonated in front of the Forum restaurant, so the bomb blew women and children backwards, again shredding the legs and feet of those in the area. Now, the blast of the first bomb was deafening. The shrapnel injured hundreds of spectators, but Karen and Crystal were standing directly in the path of the worst of the blast. Crystal's injuries were devastating. She had serious injuries to her right arm, torso, and lower legs. Some of the wounds were gaping up to 10 inches long. Her left foot was fractured, her left thigh bone was broken, and her injuries would be fatal. Crystal had so many cuts and shrapnel embedded throughout her body that when Karen looked around to find her, she would later say, I got as close as I could to her. There was so much chaos and so much screaming. And for some reason, I got close to her head and we put our faces together. I never really looked at Crystal's injuries. She very slowly said her legs hurt and we held hands. And very shortly thereafter, her hand went limp and we never spoke again. Karen herself was in critical condition. Her leg was mangled, shredded by the bomb. Karen would eventually lose her leg and her friend that day in Boston. In total, the bombs injured 247 people. 14 of them lost limbs and three died. In addition to Crystal, Martin Richards, age eight, and Lou Lingzi, age 23, were also killed in the bombing. Karen had some dark days following the Boston bombing. Because of the loss of her leg, yes, but more because of the loss of her friend. She eventually recovered and got fitted for a prosthesis and learned how to walk again. And she was overwhelmed by the support she received and by the kindness of strangers. She accepted her new leg in life and looked for how she could give something back. She was looking for what's next, what she could do to help others, like the help that she had received. And little did she know, a long-delayed shopping trip would give her the chance that she needed. She and her husband had needed some new furniture for a long time. So while in the furniture store, the store owner saw Karen's prosthetic leg and told Karen about a family friend, Estefina, who had been run over by a car in El Salvador. She had no money, so the care after her amputation in El Salvador had been minimal at best. Karen was looking for what's next, and she knew at that minute she had a mission, and she went to work. She had numerous meetings with the doctors at Shriners Hospital, arranged for care for Estefina, found funding to bring her to the United States, and hosted her when she arrived. Today, because of Karen McWaters, Estefina has a new leg and a new life. Now, there's an incredible lesson in Karen's story. She didn't wallow in the loss of her leg but accepted it and turned to focus on what was next in her life. And because she was looking for what's next, she was open and receptive and took action when the store owner told her about Estefina. Imagine if she was focused on her loss or herself, she may not have acted. But her attitude of what's next changed everything. And this mindset is not unique to Karen. Aaron Hearn, a 12-year-old, was standing just feet away from the bomb when it went off. He had severe injuries in both legs, and he came back to stand on the spot where he was injured, put it behind him, and moved on to what was next. And for him, it was baseball. Not long after, he hit a home run at Capertown with his Little League team. Devin Wong, a marathon volunteer who ran into the smoke immediately after the bombs exploded, saved a young man whose leg had been blown off. What was next for her? 
Well, she's back volunteering at the Boston Marathon looking for who she can help and what's next in her life of service. Joe Andrezzi, an offensive lineman for the Green Bay Packers and New England Patriots, was at the Forum restaurant when the bomb went off, and he carried injured people to the ambulances. Since, he has raised over $375,000 for his foundation to help families. He just looked for what's next. Now, I could go on, but here's the point. We all have things that happen in our lives that are unexpected. You've had them. Perhaps recently, you've had them happen to you. And we can follow Karen's example and accept it and move on to what's next. This is an extremely healthy and life-changing skill. You know, I've watched so many business owners waste so much time worrying about the present, wondering why things have stalled in their business or replaying the past and wallowing in the goings-on of the day. If they could just learn to quickly pivot to what's next and do that consistently, their business would change. They would change. And most of all, they would prosper. Let's think of it another way. Improv is a form of theater, most often comedy, in which what is performed is unplanned or unscripted. It's created by the performers on the spot, and the dialogue unfolds extemporaneously. Now, one of the basic tenets of improv comedy is known as yes and. It's a protocol that allows for anything to happen, and it goes like this. No matter what your fellow actors present to you, instead of negating it or belittling it or disagreeing with it, your job is to say yes and. So you accept the scenario as it's presented to you, regardless of where you wanted it to go, and then you add to it, volleying back with something your fellow players can respond to. So yes is awareness and acceptance and appreciation. It means I'm listening. It means great idea. I can't wait to play with you. And is saying what's next. It is fueling you with agency and autonomy and action. And is taking a clear step forward to add to whatever you've received. When you're an improviser, your responsibility within a scene is to accept the reality your scene partner has established and to contribute by adding to that reality. Saying yes to your partner is how you acknowledge their contribution and accept it as true. This is an amazing tool in life as well. Imagine if you pulled your calf muscles so you can no longer run in the morning and you have to rest it for two to four weeks. Instead of lamenting and complaining of your injury and bad luck, yes, and would say, yes, I pulled my calf muscle, and now I have the opportunity to focus on weights and upper body strength in my exercises for the next two to four weeks. Or imagine you started a business, but now sales have stalled. Instead of lamenting and complaining of your bad luck, yes, sales have stalled, And now I have the opportunity to focus on new ways to bring customers to the table. I'll be better for it. You see, there's tremendous power in developing the habit of yes and, or if you want to call it, what's next. One of the most critical skills for golfers and tennis players is the mental habit of what's next. If you hit a bad shot on one hole in golf, you accept it entirely and pivot your focus on what's next. You see, much of the difference between the best players in the world is not physical skill, it's mental. 
So often a player can let the emotion and mindset following a shot in the water or a missed putt carry on to the next hole. A bad shot or two can send some golfers into a downward spiral. Negative thoughts that start swirling in their head and intense negative emotions spring up and muscles tighten. So professional golfers often memorize what's next statements such as, it's in the past, move on. That's behind me, focus on what's next. Stop dwelling on the past, focus on the next hole. And while you might not be a professional golfer, life is often very much like a round of golf. If you're a business owner moving from one approach to customers to the next, if you're a parent moving from one learning experience of your children to the next, and each event in our lives, we often encounter unexpected interruptions, failings, and successes. And how do you move on without letting these interruptions sidetrack you? Well, you put on and develop the habit of what's next. Now, an emerging branch of psychology is called prospective psychology or prospection. This is the practice of creating an image in your mind of your possible future. This includes planning and predicting and using hypothetical scenarios about future events seeing if you can find a way to set your mind on optimism and an abundant future, despite the hurdles that you're currently facing. And what's next is an important part of perspective psychology, to shift your mind from current thinking to perspective thinking. Now, research has shown that planning and predicting activates the same portion of the brain as when we're hearing or watching a compelling story. You see, an interesting story will cause our brain to place us in the story emotionally, even mentally, activating the part of the brain we would use if the story was actually happening to us. Similarly, when we think prospectively, we do the same. We're bringing the emotional side of our brain into play and putting it to work as if it's actually happening. That's why when we shift from what has happened to us and embrace what's next, we engage the most powerful part of us. And that brings emotional power to our lives. The habit of what's next helps us to be happy. Now, for six to eight decades, a landmark study has been underway at Harvard University. It's a longitudinal study, one of the most extensive ever done. And it revealed some remarkable things. In fact, it revealed the secret to living a happy life. Now, longitudinal studies such as the Harvard study are the most difficult to conduct, but they yield the richest information. You see, a typical research study takes a measurement of a single point in time, a cross-section of the data. But longitudinal studies use repeated observations of the same people over long periods of time, often decades. They follow the same cohort or group of like-kind people over a lifetime to see the actual end results. So if you want to see the true impact of poverty, follow poor children into their adult years. If you want to see the impact of being a twin, follow sets of twins for a lifetime. But because of the cost and logistics involved, very few in-depth longitudinal studies are ever done. Now, this study, the study of adult development at Harvard University, has followed and studied three cohorts of men and women since the 1920s. Participants in these studies were interviewed and given a physical exam every two to five years. 
And the study not only examined physical health, but also tracked a host of other factors in an attempt to determine what causes or detracts from the developmental, emotional, and mental health of the participants. The study revealed the causes of good or poor health. Interestingly, smoking, alcohol, weight, and exercise were the highest predictors of whether someone would be healthy. While smoking was the biggest contributor to poor health, exercise was the leveling factor. You see, consistent exercise led to greater health despite other harmful factors. Even for those who were overweight, if they included regular exercise in their life, they had significantly improved health and longevity. Now, while health was one emphasis of the study, the most surprising results came when researchers discovered what factors led to happiness in life. At first glance, one would think the Harvard cohort, with average incomes of over $105,000 during their working years and high social standing, would be happier because of their wealth or circumstances, right? Or one might think that the inner city cohort, with average incomes below $35,000, would reveal poverty leads to unhappiness. And you would think the Terman women, with IQs of over 140, one of the other cohorts, would make more intelligent life choices and have better health and longevity. But the study revealed income and IQ were not significant factors in determining happiness. Over time, researchers observed it's not the bad things that happen to us that determine our happiness, but what we choose to do with those things that matter. In fact, some of the happiest individuals made bad choices or had devastating illness, loss, and events happen to them during their lifetime. The bad experiences themselves weren't a predictor of happiness or unhappiness. For almost all participants who were rated as happy, it is what they did with what happened to them. Almost all of them had the habit of what's next. This positive adaption to life played a significantly greater role than genetics, wealth, race, or other factors in determining how happy they were. One study participant, Bill Graham, suffered years of abuse as a child. Researchers described his early years as filled with starvation, abuse, lack of love, and aloneness. His mother gave him up to foster care when he was three and a half years old. When Bill was six years old, his father was committed to a state hospital for psychosis. Bill was beaten by his foster parents, and he said, I always knew when someone was coming to visit because I got fed and cleaned. In the researcher scoring system, only 16 of the 456 inner city cohort suffered a worse childhood than Bill. Yet amazingly, in subsequent research visits, researchers observed that Bill went on to mold a rich and happy life for himself. He married well. His wife was unselfish and kind and loving. She was dependable and considerate. Then at age 53, he suffered a devastating blow. His wife died of cancer. At age 58, five years later after his wife's death, he accepted it and used it to figure out what's next. He found a new mission in life, helping others who suffered as he did. And he went on to create a ministry. And researchers rated him in their highest happiness category, despite his being stricken by bladder cancer and kidney failure and triple bypass surgery shortly thereafter. In every stage of life, Graham took what came to him 
and turned it into the next good thing in his life. So how can you develop the habit of what's next? Well, we have to remember that our body and mind react to our thoughts and feelings. Literally saying the words, what's next, and shifting your thinking from the past or present to the future can cause stress relief and a different level of reaction. I know one sports psychologist who trains his athletes to breathe out and breathe in. When they breathe out, he trains them that they're breathing out emotions. And when they breathe in, they are breathing in concentration on what's next. Can you see how focusing on what's next can keep our focus on what matters? For example, let's assume after a disagreement with your husband, he apologizes. You have a choice. You can revisit in your mind the ways he didn't meet your expectations or say to yourself, I accept his apology. What's next? Can you see the health and positivity and feelings of peace that follow a what's next mindset? Let me give you one more pertinent example. Recently, my wife accepted a leadership position in an organization. And while most things have gone well, soon she started to get criticism from a few members. Even more, those members have conversations about her performance with each other. And this had a sharp sting to my wife. She was working so hard, yet others were criticizing her and criticizing her behind her back. Now, this can hurt when you think others are talking negatively about you or your performance. And I've been a leader of companies and volunteer organizations, even classrooms. And I have almost always faced the same thing. No matter how good you are or how hard you try, you will not please everyone. And if you react to what's being said and dwell on those things, it takes you down a mental and emotional rabbit hole that has no benefit whatsoever. I've learned in those situations to apply the what's next thinking. First, listen to what's being said. Is there truth to what's being said? If so, learn from it and go to what's next and plan how you can do better. Even by deciding one way you can improve, it frees you up from the stress of others thinking poorly of you and empowers you with the positive feelings of the future. Second, if there's no truth to what they're saying, move on to what's next. Focus on the next good things you have planned. This will also free up your emotions for what matters. Don't let yourself get dragged down into other people's complaints. And here's the truth. Even though you might not like the situation you're in, you can choose to accept it. And once you learn to accept what is, and then focus on what you can control in the future, you win. Remember, the only thing that matters is your response. You can't change others. You can't change the past. You can only change your response. You know, in the Rocky Mountains, we have ticks. They're eight-legged creatures that attach themselves to their host. That's you. With a mouth that looks like a clamp, and in the middle is a spiked harpoon that sticks to your skin. Then they begin drawing blood for days. And they release an anticoagulant to keep your blood from clotting. And one common yet scary result is they often pass along Lyme disease. And if you've ever had a tick lock onto you, it's almost impossible to get off. You must use tweezers because the tick will let itself be ripped in half before it lets go of you. Now, the rumor is you take a match to the tick, but this doesn't work. What you do is you take a piece of thread, 
loop it around the tick as far down its snout as possible and gently pull for several minutes. The tick will then see resistance is futile and it'll release its grip. The truth is, we all have ticks that have attached themselves to us. What are they? Well, there's the skeptic, critic, drastic, frantic, pessimistic, and dramatic. These are the most dangerous ticks. And the truth is, some of us have let these ticks suck our blood for a long time. In fact, we often spend so much time on the dramatic that our emotional energy is drained before we can even begin doing what we want to or trying to change. Just like removing a tick, a few short, small things can remove these ticks from our life. Focusing on what's next, being humble, or planning for the next time will do that. Soon you'll be tick-free and emotionally able to invest in others or more important things. Now, when Rachel was 13, her parents divorced, and Rachel was heartbroken. She didn't know what to do, but she watched her mom. Rather than wallow in her divorce, her mom just focused on what's next. She accepted where she was and looked for the next opportunity. She found a new job, and rather than leave Rachel with the babysitter, her mom took her to work with her. There she watched her mother in the kitchen and in life. And she learned that when one path ends, you just start another. And this would change Rachel's life. At the age of 23, Rachel left her small hometown in the mountains and went to pursue her dream in New York City. She started working at the candy counter at Macy's. She was optimistic, a hard worker, and soon she was managing the entire fresh foods department. Then she became store manager of a gourmet marketplace. Then one night, she was mugged, a violent and scary encounter. And during the same time period, she had her heart broken by a young man. What did she do? She followed her mom's example. When one path ends, start another. So she left New York City forever. At age 26 years of age, she went back home, got a job as a food buyer at a specialty food shop, and she focused on what's next. By doing that, she saw an opportunity to teach evening classes about how to make easy, no-fuss meals. And when the chef declined to do it, Rachel stepped in and did it on a permanent basis. She started a new path. As a result, she was noticed by a reporter for a local CBS station, and they asked her to do a three-minute, once-a-week segment on the local news. Another new path for Rachel. This even parlayed into doing travel segments on the news without ever being paid for her work. Then one day, the Today Show caught wind of her news segments. They asked her to come and cook soup alongside the show anchors. So she drove nine hours in a snowstorm and made the appearance. From this appearance, the Food Network discovered her, and soon CBS offered her her own talk show. The Rachel Ray Show has been running ever since. Her estimated net worth, $60 million. And she credits her success to the one skill she learned from her mother. When you come to an end of the path, start a new one. Focus on what's next. So as we come to a close today, resolve to walk away from this podcast and practice a few critical skills. First, start the habit of what's next. When something does or does not go as planned, shift, pivot, 
to what's next. Breathe out emotion and breathe in the next actions you will take. And when you face things you can't control, learn what you can control and walk towards what's next. And like Karen McWaters, you'll find that the new opportunities to do good will find you because you're open and seeking the next good thing in life. And like Rachel Ray's mother, you may very well pass on a critical life skill to your children and your team and to those around you of what's next. Well, thanks for being here today. Please join us next week for another podcast as we learn to open our eyes to who and what we can become.